Uh, I've heard it said that when it comes to making ice, uh, we make ice cubes, but that God makes snowflakes. It's a little corny, I know, but there's actually not a bad point behind it. We make ice cubes, God makes snowflakes. In other words, we tend to like sameness, uh, uniformity. Uh, Because of things like peer pressure, we tend to feel most comfortable when we're not different from others. God, however, delights in difference. Uh, God's creativity means that he loves things not being the same. Like snowflakes, scientists have in fact estimated that large snowflake crystals are so complex that that it is unlikely of all the snowflakes that have fallen in the history of the planet, no two have probably ever been the same. When it comes to making ice, we like ice cubes, God makes snowflakes. It's actually not a bad summary of what we discovered last week in chapter 12. That was a chapter you might remember that was all about how God delights in diversity, especially within his church. And that Christ's church is like our physical bodies, with lots and lots and lots of different parts all forming the one body. You might also remember that that Paul said all of this because the Corinthians are measuring who in the church are the most spiritual people based on what gifts they have. They are measuring and they are rating how spiritual a person is by their giftedness. Paul has argued that that's a hopeless way of thinking. His response last week was that every Christian has God's spirit. The spirit deliberately gives different gifts to different people. So not that we'll compare each other, not that we'll rate each other, but so that we'll need each other, so that we'll have equal concern for each other. Paul's not finished with this topic yet, though. He's got a lot more to say about it. And in particular, there's one very big issue that he wants to sort out. Because if spirituality is not measured by giftedness, and it's not, how is it measured? If being a spiritual person is not about what gifts you have, what is it about? What is involved in being a spiritual Christian? Well, that's the question that Paul wants to answer today. And put briefly, Paul says that being a spiritual Christian is not about what gifts you have. Being spiritual is about how you use your gifts. And Paul explains this by introducing what he calls the most excellent way. Look with me at the last verse of chapter 12. The last verse of chapter 12. And this is well and truly one of those cases where chapter breaks and headings in our Bibles are not very helpful at all. Remember, chapter breaks and headings, they're not part of the original text. They were put in hundreds of years later to help us sort of find stuff quickly in the Bible. But sometimes, like this morning, they've been put in really terrible places because they disrupt the flow of the logic. Chapter 12, verse 31. But eagerly desire the greater gifts, and now I will show you the most excellent way. Now, that verse follows directly on from what we saw last Sunday. Paul has just listed off a heap of rhetorical questions so as to stress that God gives different gifts to different people. He said stuff like, do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Or, as the New American Standard Bible puts it, probably more correctly in capturing the tone of the original text, All don't speak in tongues, do they? 
or don't interpret, do they? Well, following on from that, Paul now says, eagerly desire the greater gifts. Which, if you think about it, that's a surprising thing to say. Because everything that Paul has said up until now in the chapter has implied that there are no greater gifts. He's just finished saying that all gifts are different, all gifts are needed, all gifts are important. All parts should have equal concern, he said last week. And now he's talking about greater gifts. What's going on? What are they? Now, you need to listen to me very carefully here. You need to listen to me very critically. Because I want to suggest that the translation of verse 31 that most of us have in our Bibles is not the most helpful one. An equally valid translation of verse 31 is, you are eagerly desiring the greater gifts. But now let me show you the most excellent way. Now, did you hear the difference? He's not so much saying what they should do, he's simply describing what they are doing. You are eagerly desiring the greater gifts. But now let me show you the most excellent way. Now, based simply on grammar, that is an equally possible translation, but in terms of its context, I want to suggest it's a much better fit for the flow of the argument. Because you see, Paul is now going to go on to describe how in one sense there is no such thing as greater gifts, there's simply great ways to use your gift. And in particular, love is the most excellent way to use your gift which is where chapter 13 fits in, as Paul describes now the essentialness, the characteristics and the permanence of love. Chapter 13, verse 1. If I speak in the gifts of, in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Please notice how in these verses Paul is now picking out several different gifts from the lists that he gave us last week in chapter 12. Gifts like speaking in tongues. Gifts like prophesying. Gifts like the gift of knowledge. And he's using them as as a sample almost so as to make the point that whatever gift you've got, it is completely useless. It will gain you nothing if it's not exercised in love. That's a big call. Look at some of the things he refers to here. If I give all I possess to the poor, that's a very impressive thing to do. Imagine giving every single thing you own to charity. All your money, all your possessions, the shirt off your back, absolutely everything given away to the needy. Paul says you're wasting your time if you haven't done it in love. What if I surrender my body to the flames? Hey, what if I become a martyr for Jesus Christ? What if I get persecuted and tortured? You'll gain nothing if you haven't done it in love. In God's opinion, love is absolutely essential, isn't it? If you don't have it, nothing you do, no matter what gift you have, will be of benefit to you. You can do hospitality and have people in your home every day of the week. You can preach the greatest sermon ever preached. You can be in church every single week of your entire life. You can give heaps and heaps and heaps of money in the plate. You can put your name down on every church roster under the sun. 
You can lead a growth group that is the talk of the church. You can serve on a church music team till the day you die. You can have a world-famous healing ministry. You can be a life member of the committee of management. You can run your life ragged meeting one-on-one with different people every day of the week. And it's not worth a cracker if you don't have love. Why? What's the big deal about love? That's what he goes on to explain in the next two things, particularly the characteristics of love. Verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. doesn't envy. doesn't boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily wronged. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Let me make two generalisations from those verses. Firstly, love is clearly a commitment to someone else's needs before your own. What does it say? Love is kind. Love is not self-seeking. It keeps no record of wrongs. In other words, love is doing what is best for another person. It's putting aside our own pleasure. It's putting aside our own comfort for the sake of another person. It's not self-seeking. Love is therefore not using your gift to promote yourself. It's not using your gift so as to be a prima donna and doing things simply to be noticed. It's being other person-centred rather than self-centred. Second generalisation, it is unconditional. Listen again to those verses. Love is patient, love is kind. Doesn't envy, doesn't boast, not proud, not rude, not self-seeking, not easily angered, no record of wrongs, always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, never fails. Now I want you to notice that they are completely unconditional statements. It does not say, it does not say, love is patient unless that stupid person's really getting on your nerves. It does not say, love is not easily angered except when that same person forgets they're on the roster again. It does not say love keeps no record of wrongs except for that person who's been giving you a hard time for years. It does not say love always perseveres unless, of course, when no one notices all the hard work you've been doing. Completely unconditional statements. God says that's love. Love is keeping on doing works of service even when no one notices. Love is using your gift to help others even if they never thank you for it. And it is worth remembering here that this is in the context of using our gifts within a church family. Because this chapter and verses 4 to 7 in particular seem to be one of those bits of the Bible that get quoted out of context all the time. I suspect because they really are beautiful parts of scripture. Just the poetry here is quite masterful. And so often these verses get ripped out and used in a whole range of different places. Verses like these often turn up at weddings or in greeting cards. I'm sure there's a Father's Day greeting card out there that's got some of these verses in it. Or they get put up on posters with kittens playing with balls of wool or sunsets or or that sort of stuff. And, And I sort of get that because these verses are truly masterful. 
And they do have lots of implications. If you're a dad here, if you love your family this way, your family will be the talk of the neighbourhood. Fellas, if you love your wives this way, you will, your marriage will be the envy of all your friends. But we need to remember that first and foremost, these are verses about using our gifts within a church family. And you're starting to get an inkling as to why it is that love is so essential in that context. Because when we're using our gifts in love the way it's described here, they will be helping us build each other up. When we use our gifts in love, it will mean that we'll be using them for the mutual good of the church, which is the reason why God gave them to us in the first place. We learnt that last week in chapter 12, verse 7. But Paul doesn't even finish there. Not only are the characteristics of love such that they will ensure that our gifts are being used for the mutual good of the church family, there's also... And in one sense, he's saving up his biggest point about love till last because love is not only essential and unconditionally unselfish, it is also profoundly permanent. Verse 8. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I was a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. Please notice again here, there is a comparison going on between gifts. Again he mentions prophecy, again he mentions tongues, again he mentions knowledge. All gifts that he's listed off in the previous chapter. And here he's making the point that all those gifts will one day stop. One day they'll be no more. One day they'll disappear. One day they won't be needed anymore. But these three remain, faith, hope and love. The greatest of these is love. Let me mention two things. Firstly, a lot of discussion over when this will happen. When will prophecies cease? When will tongues be stilled? Uh, Now, one school of thought is that these have already uh, ceased when the Bible was completed. That when the Bible was finally finished, uh, then all we need to know of Christ for salvation, everything we need to be equipped for every good work is hearing God's word. And so it's often said that tongues and prophecy and knowledge, they're all now passe, really. They're redundant because we've got God's word in the Bible. There's a degree of truth in that. Um, God himself says you don't need anything other than the Bible to be equipped for every good work. But I don't think that's what Paul's getting at here. Uh, Phrases like, when perfection comes, the imperfect will disappear. Now I know in part, then I will know fully as I am fully known. Sounds like it's more the coming of the kingdom of God in full. Sounds like he's talking more here about the return of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, when Paul is rattling off the gifts of tongue and prophecy and knowledge in these verses, I think he's using them in a representative sort of way. He's picking almost a few gifts at random, like he did up in verses 1 to 3, so as to make the point that one day all gifts will cease. Gifts like speaking in tongues and prophecy and gifts like the gift of administration from the previous chapter. Gifts of teaching, like from, again, from the previous chapter. But we don't tend to think of those gifts ceasing after the Bible was completed. 
I think a more straightforward way of reading this chapter is that all the gifts that Paul is talking about here, speaking in tongues, prophecy, knowledge, healing, teaching, they are all still valid gifts. They're all still good gifts for Christians to have nowadays. They haven't ceased yet, but he wants us to know that one day they will. Friends, when the new creation comes, gifts will be redundant. It's quite a forcible point. Spiritual gifts, not that he ever uses that phrase, but spiritual gifts will not exist in the age to come. They are transient. They are part of living in a fallen world. They've got a role now, but it's temporary. Faith, hope and love will be around in the new creation. Even in the new creation, there will be faith, a trust and reliance in God. Even in the new creation, there will be hope, a firm and strong conviction of an eternal future. And even more so, there will be love in the new creation, especially so. Which is his second interesting thing to note, that love is described here as the greatest of those. He doesn't actually give a reason why it is the greatest, he just says it. Allow me to speculate. I reckon that it's at least partly because God tells us that he is love. See, God says he is faithful, but he never says he is love. God says that he brings hope, but he never says that he is hope. And yet God doesn't just say he's loving. In 1 John 4, God says he is love. In other words, there's something about love that takes us to the very essence of who God is. In fact, think about the stuff we've already seen about love in this chapter. It's essentialness and it's characteristics of being unconditionally selfless. All those things are true of God in himself. You see it in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all working together, never stopping to serve the other. That, that's God in himself, unconditionally caring for the other members of the Trinity which is hard to get our heads around, I know, but it's meaning that there is something about love that takes us to the very essence of who God is, as well as what he radiates out to us. That as ours already read, that in love God unconditionally saved us. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. I think this all has implications as to why love is the greatest. It's the greatest... Because when we love each other, that's when we are being most like God in a profoundly permanent way. When we love each other, that is when we are most acting like God acts. And so you're starting to see why it is that love is such an excellent way. Are you starting to see why it is that love is the most excellent way and why being a spiritual person is not about what gift you have. Being a spiritual person is based on whether you're using whatever gift you have in love. Because love will mean that you are using that gift in ways that God actually behaves, doing things that God actually does, using your gift to do what God wants you to do. And when we're being patient with that person who really annoys us, when we're being kind to that awkward person who needs help, when we're not envious about someone else getting more attention than we do, 
when we don't boast about our gifts, when we're not proud, when we're not rude, when we're not self-seeking, when we're not angered, when we keep no record of wrongs, when we delight in truth, when we protect the vulnerable amongst us, when we trust each other, when we're always there for one another, when you walk away from morning tea this morning having had a conversation with someone who has actually listened to you and treated you as if you're the only person in the room, when an unexpected person in the church family gives you an unexpected kindness, that's heaven. For we are at our most godlike when we love one another. And so when the Apostle Paul writes to a church who are confused about gifts, a church that is rating and comparing how spiritual they are by what gift they have, Paul responds by saying, it actually doesn't matter what gift you've got at all. What matters is whether you're exercising it in love. Because when you use your gifts in love, you'll be using it for the mutual good which is why God gave it to you in the first place. And when you use your gifts in love, you'll be using it in a profoundly permanent way. So I've got an idea. Let's actually do this. Let's seek to excel in love. Let's actually want to follow the most excellent way. So why not pick the characteristics that are listed there in verse 4 to 7, why not pick them to systematically grow in love? You know, like pick one and focus on it this week. Love is patient. Okay? Love is patient. Verse 4. Stick it on the fridge. Write it at the top of every day in your diary this week. Have it at the forefront of your thinking. This week, I'm going to work on my patience. This week, I'm consciously going to work at growing in my patience. Tell someone that you're doing it so that you can be held accountable to it. And then next week, go into the next phrase. Love is kind. I'm going to focus on that this week. I'm going to be kind in my words. I'm going to be kind in my actions. I'm going to be kind in, in my time allocation. And then move on to the next one. Let's actually do this. Because it won't be a burden. We're actually being called on to enjoy a blessing here. Because the greatest evidence that the Spirit has been poured out into us, the greatest evidence that we are God's children, the greatest evidence that you are a spiritual person. It's not what gift you've got. It's whether you're loving. I'll pray. Father, thank you that you are love and that you have radiated that out to us in sending your own precious son so as to be the sacrifice for our sins, which we've celebrated this morning with communion. Thank you for that, Father. Lord, we want to be your children who are also characterised by love. Please help us to follow this most excellent way so that together as a church family we can live up to the calling that we have received in Christ. It is for his name and his sake that we ask this, Father. Amen.